Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. Chris, good morning. Lovely to chat to you. Welcome. Good morning. I can't get over this. Um, urine and cell phones. I didn't know that there was some connection. Scientists unveiling the world's first mobile phone powered ur- powered by urine? Well, what they've done, this is a group in Bristol University in Britain. They've created this box. It's about the size of a big box that you would put milk bottles in, a milk crate. And you have a wire coming off of it and it generates current sufficiently large to charge a mobile phone and what people don't know is that inside this box is a seething mass of bacteria and these bacteria can metabolize the chemicals that are in urine and produce electricity so it's a sort of proof of concept uh, pea power and you basically are demonstrating that you can use microbes to turn a waste product that would normally be thrown away into something useful. The amount of electricity is very small, but it is demonstrating that you can actually extract electrochemical energy from waste, and the idea is that perhaps you could have a mobile uh, charge-your-phone mobile system all over the place, and people just go to the loo, and uh, then out comes some power. I heard one other person speculating that you might make these things as a sort of personal um, portable electricity carrier pack ah. so you'd uh, carry around this sort of desiccated system and then you pee in it and uh, then a little while later after it's warmed up in your pocket it's pumping out some current and you can charge things up with it uh, one person who uh, this was put to said well what happens if someone runs into you when you're carrying around in your pocket that could be a bit disgusting couldn't it yeah absolutely oh yeah our lines, <laughs> our lines are open for you on 021 446 i was on your twitter account uh, or your Twitter page uh, uh, Chris and I saw some very int- oh no they've just disappeared I'll, 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 I'll find the question that fascinated me in just a moment but there's an SMS here from Rosie it says please could you ask Chris why if the sun is this big ball of fire and creates light how come it is dark in space right well first of all you have to ask well, why are things light in the first place and things are light either because they give out light or because they reflect light The sun is giving out light, it's a giant nuclear reactor and it's converting mass into energy and radiating that energy off into space and when it hits something it bounces off of it and we can see it. So when you look at the planets in our solar system, things like Jupiter, things like Saturn, the Earth, they all reflect light off of their atmospheres and a person observing from outside in space sees this pinpoint of light which is the light reflecting off those planets. The space itself is empty. There's only a few atoms in every 
cubic metre of space, if that. And so there's nothing for the light to interact with and bounce from, so space looks dark. And it is dark, it's very cold. Uh, if you go out from our solar system, it's you know, close to absolute zero out there. Here's the question that I wanted to ask you. I saw it posted on your Twitter page. Uh, what you eat could affect how, um, how, how your gut breaks down drugs. Chris, I'm really fascinated by that. Mm, there's a, a, st- a study It's actually come out this week. It's by researchers in America. Um, it's a gentleman called Henry Hazer, who's at Harvard. It's in uh, science this week. And they were looking at this whole question of we give people around the world different drugs and different drugs work differently in different people. And you might say, well, that's just because we're all different. We're biochemically a little bit different. But then they do these interesting studies where they find that in uh, mice, if they take mice and they put a certain bug into them, a bacterium, which is commonly found in the intestine, this bug can break down a certain drug that we usually use for heart conditions. And they found that if they feed the mice a diet which is very rich in protein, then these bugs lose interest in breaking down the drug and they change their metabolism and break down other things Mm -hmm. instead. Whereas if you feed a low-protein diet, then the mice massively increase their breakdown of the drug molecules. So when you take blood out of the mice, you find that the levels can vary by 100%. And, of course, that could make the difference between a drug working or not working. And so they're making the point that in future, when we give people drugs, we should also be considering maybe measuring what sorts of bugs they have in their intestines and what sort of diet they're eating because this could be affecting the way these drugs work and we may need to tweak the system a bit, either tweak their diet or treat the dose of the drug Mm -hmm. in order to achieve the therapeutic effect that we desire. Thank you very much, Chris. Let's go straight to the lines then. We have Martin joining us from Germiston. Good morning. Good morning, Chris. Um, I read somewhere, if you fill a plastic bag uh, half halfway with water and you throw in a few pennies or coins and you hang this bag near a open window, uh, be it a restaurant or a pub or something, no flies actually enters the restaurant or that area where the bag is. Uh, is there any truth to it, and does it work, and how does it work? Okay, coins and water well, is Martin, a deterrent. I think, um, you should you should do the the test because <laughs> yes. science is all about doing the right experiment. So you need to do the experiment and do a controlled experiment. So you need to have a bag with and without water, a bag with and without coins, a window with and without a bag, and you need to do this lots of times and count the number of flies in in the restaurant, keeping the restaurant invariant for a while, and then go to a series of restaurants and try this at different times of the year and see if you can build up a relationship <laughs> and uh, not with the restaurant owner but with <laughs> with the number of flies going in and uh, and then report back here and tell us what you find my own my own feeling is it probably won't work i suspect it won't work either <laughs> so i didn't want to say it first so you did martin good luck to you try that experiment and get back to us we really wanted to know what the outcome is janet and New- newland stay on the line for me i'll take your call in a moment our lines are open for you do call us what are your questions for the naked scientist we're satisfying our curiosity about the world in which we live on 021-446-0567 the Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. 19 minutes to 10 o'clock. Let's go straight to Janet in Newlands. Hi. Good morning, Reedy. Good morning, Chris. Mm. I've got two elderly black and white cats, mother and son. She's 19, he's 18. There is not a sign of grey in their fur. I'm amazed. What, what's the explanation to this? <laughs> Hi, Janet. Cats don't go grey. People do. Uh, I, I won't. Uh, 
suggest that you're going grey at all. <laughs> um, I'm sure not. Um, but maybe the cats just use hair dye. Have you thought of that? <laughs> Chris! <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, it's a very good question. And I think that the, the point here is how old they are. Because in a human, it takes a, a good 30, 40, 50 years before you begin to go grey. Whereas in a cat, now yes, they do live less long than us, but that doesn't mean that all of their tissues are ageing at the same rate. Um, and, and I think in the same way that a cat ages more slowly in, in its fur situation, so it, it retains its colouring and markings, internally it's going to age more quickly, which is why cats do tend to get kidney problems and heart problems as they get a bit older, and, and then they tend to live not more than 20 years. Humans go on for four times that. Mm. So I think it's probably down to the fact that not all the tissues in the cat age at the same sort of rate, and just because a cat doesn't live for as long as a human does, it doesn't mean that all of its tissues clap out at the same rate universally through the cat. So I suspect that, that the cells that add the pigment to the hair are maintaining their activity for longer in the cat because they're only doing it for 20 years and cats have lots of them because cats have very colourful fur and that's the reason. But I will look into that because it's an interesting question and I think there might be more to it than I'm able to come up with here. So thank you for that, Janet. Thanks, Janet. We'll have an answer hopefully uh, soon. Paul in Cape Town, hi. Hi, morning, Reedy. Mm. Morning, Chris. Um, my question is, what is the most accurate? Is it going to be by... GPS as far as testing the speed goes, GPS or my odometer? Which one do I trust the, trust the most? Hi, Paul. Um, if you are going at, a, at an average... Well, let me start again. If you are travelling at a constant speed along a nice flat bit of road and you have good line of sight to these satellites, the GPS is going to return uh, a very, very accurate, ac uh, accurate um, average speed. If you look at the odometer in your car, this is inaccurate anyway because as the tyres wear down, then the wheel speed changes very slightly so oh. there's a degree of inaccuracy because it's recording how many times the, the wheel goes round on the car and if you've got new tread, then obviously the circumference of the tyre is slightly bigger than if you have older tyres which have worn down because the tread has gone, therefore the tyre is slightly smaller. So this will, will also make you have a, an inaccurate speed. Also, the odometer is calibrated, but there, there will be a tolerance. Most of them may be up to 10% out, and that tolerance may become greater the faster you're going or the slower you're going. depends. So, therefore, at a constant speed, I would go with the GPS. If you're at very slow speeds or stopping and starting, GPSs are notoriously unreliable because they, there's a lot of wiggle, there's inaccuracies, and so it will make mistakes at, at very low speeds and that sort of thing, and when it doesn't have constant line of sight. So, uh, therefore, mm -hmm. under those circumstances, the odometer would be uh, a better way of recording what's going on. So it depends on the situation. Thanks very much, Paul. And uh, let's go to, is it another Paul in Brixton? Good morning. Uh, good morning. Mm. Uh, I have a question relating to the Messinian salinity crisis, which happened about five and a half million years ago when the Mediterranean basin repeatedly closed and opened due to tectonic movement, uh, during which time uh, it would have dried out within a thousand years and then refilled within a, a year when it did reopen. Now, the question is, how would that have affected sea life, like reefs? How would that have affected the climate and, by extension, evolution? Okay. A lot of questions there. Mm. I think the, the thing is that across the whole of the planet, the Mediterranean is just one very tiny place. So on the grand scheme of things, it would have made very little difference to the whole planet, as indeed it hasn't. 
at a local level, it would have had a dramatic effect, obviously, for the organisms that are there. And so some organisms probably wouldn't have been able to tolerate the changes as they began to occur. Other organisms would have been able to adapt and some would have just been completely killed outright straight away. It's interesting because if you go to northwestern Australia, there's a place called the Perrin Peninsula, Perrin Bay, and within that is Shark Bay. And this is a, a very big in, enclosed bit of sea. So there are, there are these two almost like pincers of a crab that go out into the ocean, the Indian Ocean. And there's a narrow inlet, and then there's a big body of water within this area. And because it's sort of similar to the Mediterranean, you get a lot of evaporation off of the water, so the salinity there is much higher. And if you look at the sorts of species that live there, there are shellfish which are tolerant of much uh, more salty water than you would find elsewhere. And there are other species like that too. So it, this strongly suggests that these sorts of animals do exist and can exist and can evolve to exist. And I suspect that this sort of thing would have happened in the Mediterranean progressively as, as salinity has gone up and down over time. So it will slowly, these things don't happen overnight usually. So as a result, you've got time for animals to shift, move or, or adapt. And there will be animals that will have adapted along that the timeline to become tolerant of those conditions, I would say. Mm -hmm. Phil Douglas Deal. Good morning to you guys. Yes. Uh, my question is a medical question, a quick one. Um, when you have various aches and pains in your body, sometimes you're told to put a hot pack on it and sometimes you're told to put an ice pack on it. Now, my question is, when do you use which and why? I'll listen on the radio. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I a lovely also question. Want to know. Um, well, we did actually look at this on the Naked Scientist uh, podcast a, a while back, sort of, does ice really make a difference to injuries? And the jury's out, really. When you have got uh, injury, you want blood flow to the area to bring in nutrients and restorative factors so that it can repair itself. The problem is that when you have an intense blood flow and a lot of inflammation, it's very sore. So if you want to slow down the sorts of chemical reactions that make inflammation and you want to bring swelling down, then putting a cold compress on something has the effect of slowing down the chemical reactions a little bit so you make fewer inflammatory mediators, but also it causes the blood vessels to constrict a bit. And this means that there's less blood flowing into the area, therefore it doesn't swell so much. So it really depends, it's sort of horses for courses, it depends on what's wanted to be achieved. If you want to put the, something warm on an area, get the blood flowing to it and get it repaired, that's a good thing. If you want to slow down the rate at which inflammation is occurring to stop it swelling up and becoming painful, then sometimes a cold compress is good too. Uh, I don't think there's any really, really good clinical data out there, mm. uh, one over the other, of which is the best to do. I will have a look at this because it is a good question and see if I can find anybody who's actually done a trial. It's really hard to do it well, though, because um, if you say you bruise yourself, you're not going to have an identical bruise on your right leg and on your left leg and then be able to put a cold compress on one and a hot pad on the other to compare. Mm. So it's really difficult to do these sorts of studies and do them well, but I will certainly have a look into this and see what I can flush out because it is it's interesting. Here's an SMS here. Um, I was on a diabetic diet when I was pregnant with my three kids, says uh, Karen, and went, went, always, I always went back to my weight. My adult, my kids are now small eaters and maintain their weight well. Could this have been a result of my diabetic diet during pregnancy? Well, there's certainly a suggestion that your babies do inherit their what's called epigenetic profile 
in other words, how their DNA works, based on what mum eats when she is pregnant. And the data on this is largely based on people who have had very dramatic things happen to them when they've been pregnant. There's a very good study which was published a few years ago by a gentleman called Baz Hymans, who works in the Netherlands, and he was studying people who were part of the Dutch hunger winter. During the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands in World War II, very large numbers of people ended up starving. And some of those people, just by chance, were pregnant at the time. So the babies that they were carrying were effectively being starved as well because mum was hungry. What they have been able to do in, in the subsequent studies is to compare those babies that were born to the women who were starving with their brothers and sisters who were born at the time when their mum was well fed and they therefore share a very large number of genes in common because they're all in the same family. What's different for them is whether or not mum was well fed during pregnancy. Those babies that were born to those mums who were starved have a much higher risk than their brothers and sisters of developing high blood pressure, stroke, heart disease, diabetes and obesity. And when they've looked at some of the genes in these individuals, they find that they have a different epigenetic profile. In other words, there are switches that can be added onto genes in the form of a chemical tag which can control how active certain genes are. And these individuals with these disease risks whose mums were starving have different epigenetic tags added to their DNA compared to their brothers and sisters. This shows us that what mum eats when she's pregnant has a very dramatic impact on the health outcomes for her babies and potentially also her baby's babies because if she gives birth to a daughter then the baby that's inside a pregnant woman if it's a girl even while it's a little baby developing inside the mother already the eggs that are going to be that girl's future babies are developing there so you can in fact imp impact on all of those generations it's rather like a russian doll with one doll inside the other and so I would argue that, that uh, in the case of the diabetic example we've just heard, it's certainly true that uh, the mother's health during her pregnancy is going to have a lifelong impact on the, on the outcome for her baby. Whether this will affect their in, in um, urge to eat or not, that's probably something slightly different. But their ability to control their weight and have good control over blood pressure and disease risk subsequently, that's absolutely going to be affected. You've just depressed me, Chris. I'm shattered completely destroyed because with me it was the other way around I was a health eater before I fell pregnant and I don't know what's been happening the last seven months but it's been disastrous if I may say so are you saying you're eating a lot no it's not the, um, the quantity it's the kind of food I find I, I can handle I, I'm eating carbs I can't handle vegetables I can't stand fish and chicken all the things <laughs> that I always ate I like sweets now, bread, hot cross buns, things that I never even looked at when I was That's pregnant. That's normal, isn't it? Oh, for seven months. I think my wife said that, um, well, I said to her, when, when, I said, when our daughter is born, what are you going to have? Because there are certain things that you're not advised to have when you're pregnant. Sure. Things like unpasteurized milk products in, in sort of soft mm. cheese and things like that. Um, obviously booze and liver because liver contains a lot of uh, vitamin A and this can have a teratogenic, a, a tissue transforming effect in, in developing babies. And she said, the first thing I'm going to do is have liver and onions and I'm going to go and buy some Stilton cheese and, or, or, or some brie or something and a big glass of wine. <laughs> and she did all three the minute she got home from hospital. So, so it, you know, it, it does make a difference. 
doesn't it? I mean, you have you have to just go with the flow, really. Yes, yes. Okay, let's hope for the best. I also have plans for some champagne and stuff afterwards. <laughs> let's go to Mike in Randburg. Hi. Hi there, folks. Uh, Chris, I seem to remember a long time ago hearing somebody say that it's advisable when you run your tap first thing in the morning for a glass of water, you should let it run for a while. Is that true? And if there is some hazard in taking a glass of water out of a tap immediately, what's the health risk? Hello, Mike. I think this is a legacy more of the old lead pipe days. Because when people who lived in chiefly soft water areas, because if you have hard water, then most of the pipes get furred up with a layer of calcium that stops the water having contact with the pipes anyway. But if you had, say, a lead pipe and soft water, which is mildly acidic, then you can end up with the lead leaching into the water and other chemicals from the pipe leaching into the water. So the water which is standing in the pipe can end up with an increased or augmented concentration of some of these chemicals. If that's the first sample you draw off, your glass of water is going to have those things at slightly higher levels. It's also possible in poorly treated water, perhaps that the water was at a high temperature during the day and some bacteria grew in there as well, that kind of thing. So it, it has... Two purposes. One is to flush out chemicals that might have leached out of the pipework. This is assuming your house pipework is worse than the water main. And two, if there, bu if there are bugs in there, if your water's been kept at a warm temperature in your cupboard or something because the pipes run near, near the hot pipes, then there might be some more bugs and flushing those out would be a, a good idea too. Um, is there evidence for this? Well, you'd have to go by region and look at individual houses and individual streets to and look at the plumbing and the age of the plumbing and so on. So it, it probably isn't a bad idea. It certainly won't do you any harm. It might do you some good. Right, well, Mike, thank you very much for the call. And Chris, that's where we'll leave it then. Till next week. Oh, it's gone so quickly. It's gone so, I know, I know. It's four minutes to ten. Can you believe it? <laughs> so we have to yeah, wait another seven days uh, before we speak to you again. But I follow you on Twitter and some of the very interesting questions that come through. Thanks very much, Chris. Chat next week. Thanks, Reedy. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye-bye. And, of course, the Twitter handle is at Naked Scientists. As simple as that, at Naked Scientists. And you can uh, see what other people from different parts of the world, especially those who are listening to the BBC, are asking uh, the Naked Scientists. And you can go onto their website as well on www.thenakedscientists.org. I think it's .co.city. I'm not sure. I'll just verify. Oh, there it is. www.thenakedscientists.com And uh, you can visit their website. It's still uh, the most downloaded uh, science podcast and uh, get wiser and get your questions answered. I did say earlier that uh, the, the, there's a study that's showing a link between your personality and, and, and what you eat. Um, we don't have enough information on that one, so we'll park that question and then hopefully next week or in the fu in future shows be able to to answer those questions. You can go onto our website as well on 702 and Cape Talk. It is always there, thoroughly checked, complete. If you're downloading it according to, to, to the instructions, you just go onto our website and then there's a podcast page there. It's not heard on air. Heard on air is information about who was on the show and, and stuff like that. But you go onto the podcast page and you will see a list of all the podcasts that are there.